You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Flight Control is looking at the situation. Obviously a major malfunction. Mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The words were haunting because of the contrast between the non-personal voice saying those words and the image that was on the TV screen. The space shuttle, visible only as a dot, a weak plume behind it, rising up and then diving into the sea. The Challenger disaster. Obviously a major malfunction. What made Challenger shocking, we know, is that America was watching it unfold. When the launch began, networks had tired of the shuttle launches, and they didn't break coverage. It was 11.38 a.m. They were into their daytime. Even though NASA had added this public relations boost to this particular mission, after a lottery process, they added teacher Krista McCullough of Concord, New Hampshire. She would do experiments and teach a lesson to students from space. Even this wasn't enough. The networks mostly passed on the launch. Only the fledging cable network CNN was covering the full launch. And this is 1986. They had few viewers at this point. Those who did watch and those who were gathered in freezing cold temperatures in Florida to watch the launch quickly saw excitement as the space shuttle at 73 seconds into its rise reached 46,000 feet at Mach 1.5, literally supersonic speed, then turned to confusion with lots of smoke and no immediate message from NASA. Challenger go to throttle up. The captain of the mission, Smith, saying back, Roger, go with throttle up. The NASA information officer counting the moments from mission go, saying one minute, 15 seconds, velocity 2,900 nautical miles, and then orange ball, clouds of smoke. None of it seemed to be to anyone where it should be. The rocket separating a little too early. The shuttle going up. Well, now you have ABC, NBC, CBS, all of the networks joining in. Dan Rather rushes into what's called the flash room at CBS. This was a network anchor desk that they had ready to go at all times. What Americans see at that day is not, as it's commonly reported in historical accounts, all of them watching live on TV. They were watching a tape relay of pool coverage from before. Within seconds, though, the scope of this tragedy is realized. NASA officials race to the bleachers in Florida to inform and then comfort McAuliffe's parents. Children in the bleachers watching are ordered back into the buses. Other wives and crew members are sought out. NASA Mission Control is still busy. They decide to explode one of the booster rockets as it still has propulsion and is drifting towards Florida. For a minute or so, there's a thought that there might be a recovery. Gene Smith, wife of the captain, is told by a mission control officer that they will emerge on the other side of the island. But it's all hope. The only signal coming from the shuttle is S-S-S-S-S. Computer signal indicating static. In reality, the shuttle has lost most of its part. Crews quickly losing oxygen. 
They are plummeting 12 miles in two minutes. Depressurization, lack of consciousness for some, most of the astronauts. Some are able to reach emergency air tanks, all for naught. At 207 miles per hour, the Atlantic Ocean they hit is like smashing into concrete. The information officer's voice comes on now. There's a gradual realization that there has been a disaster and the crew has been lost. For two hours, he keeps on relaying the available information from his monitor, numbers, codes, times, though few are now listening to the NASA feed. The Florida Mission Control Room is locked and all data impounded by NASA security for later investigation. In Concord, New Hampshire, where teacher McAuliffe students were watching on a special circuit provided by NASA, Concord is a small town. Most know McAuliffe, a very animated and well-liked teacher who liked to take the students on field trips. Scott McReynolds, one of the students and a teacher himself now, remembers. There were kids in the hallway crying. There were kids alone in classrooms. Holly Merrill, another student from Concord, now a teacher, remembered. Seeing your teacher crying, you don't forget that. Ben Provencial was down in Florida on those bleachers watching it. His teary, frozen face and oversized baseball cap would be captured in a Newsweek photo. We studied that launch sequence, Ben remembers. He's now a wrestling coach. We knew everything that was supposed to happen, and we knew something was wrong. Within NASA, the feeling of failure and helplessness was palpable. Alan McDonald was a contracting engineer from the company that made the rocker boosters. He had warned about the integrity problems, but now he was seeing his predictions come true live. They couldn't believe what they were seeing, and neither could I. Another NASA engineer, off the record. It was a shock to the nation, but a failure to us. In the final tragedy of the mission, a 69-year-old engineer who had worked on the fuel tanks collapsed and had a fatal heart attack two days later. The concept of a space shuttle was part of the post-moon landing NASA idea that it would be regular trips from the Earth to a space station of the United States. It wouldn't do to keep launching rockets up, so the idea is that there would be a reusable shuttle that could take off on the Earth, go into space, and land like an airplane. Funds for the first shuttle were part of Nixon's 1972 budget. The Skylab space station that it was intended to reach was abandoned, destroyed in 1979. But the shuttle mission went on, and the first shuttle launched in 1981 to fix satellites and conduct experiments in space. Columbia, Challenger, Discovery, and finally Atlantis all launched. Construction on the Challenger unit, which was initially a backup for the Columbia unit, began in 1975. Then, in 1977, the contractor Rockwell asked and received permission to convert it. During that time, the unit went through months of vibration testing, then storage in a special hydraulic rig that could put 100 million pounds of force on the vessel. The error in the Challenger disasters would turn out had little to do with the unit, but much more to do with the rockets that propelled it. STS-51L, the launch on January 26, 1987, was Challenger's 10th mission. It was so cold that day that oranges in Florida groves were ruined, their insides reduced to icy slush. As the crew was awoken that faithful morning, the temperature was 24 degrees. By launch, it had warmed to just 37 degrees. 
and the cold indeed would prove to be an enemy of this shuttle flight. What happened we now know is that the right booster rocket was improperly sealed. The rubber O-rings, which held the four parts of the rocket together, See, separating these rockets into parts made it easier and actually safer to put fuel in them, but those O-rings sealing it became brittle and failed to hold in the hydrogen. That leaked, causing an explosion in the rocket. Here's the NASA report. The Challenger was totally enveloped in explosive burn. The Challenger's reaction control system ruptured. A hypergolic burn of its propellants occurred as it exited the oxygen-hydrogen flames. The orbiter, under severe aerodynamic loads, broke into several large sections, which emerged from the fireball. Separate sections that can be identified in the film include the main engine tail section with the engine still burning, one wing of the orbiter, the forward fuselage trailing a mass of umbilical lines pulled loose from the payload bay. A moment of grief for NASA. A moment of grief for the students in Concord, New Hampshire. A moment of grief for the astronauts' families and for the entire nation. So what of the public information officer, the one whose voice that you hear during the disaster, obviously a major malfunction, Steve Nesbitt would end up working for NASA a total of 33 years. He retired in 2010. That day, he had a bit of a cold and wasn't even sure that he could make it through the entire launch. After the engines fired, five, four, three, two, one, the Kennedy people, just like that, handed off to the tower. So Nesbitt took over. He's in Houston, Texas, not in Florida. During this whole event, while people are running around, crying, comforting, absorbing the tragedy, Nesbitt is in a small concrete tower, a windowless room, isolated from all the action. His job is to voice information that he's seeing on a small black and white monitor. And he has a piece of paper that has the launch sequence. But at the 73-minute point, as disaster begins, he's getting no information to read from his monitor. So, you'll notice if you view footage of the incident, there's a 15-second delay between velocity 1900 nautical miles and when he says, obviously a major malfunction. 15-second delay. He needs to stay cool, calm. He can tell something's wrong. There is in the room that he's in, at far end of the room, Another monitor in color where he can see the smoke cloud like everyone else was seeing. So everything that he says on there forward, the, the voice that we remember in this tragedy, the malfunction, the crew has been lost, etc., those are all his words. He has no instruction or clearance to say anything. And as discussed, he went on for another two hours reading whatever available data that he had. We should not say that Nesbitt was some Ottoman without feeling. Nesbitt says, I felt like a house had dropped on me, but I didn't have the luxury of feeling. After he completed his two hours of providing public information for NASA, he said, tower off. Nesbitt left the tower, went downstairs across the street to a shopping mall to get some ice cream, trying to feel normal again. Nesbitt would be the voice for the next shuttle launch in 1988. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. 
But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Ladies and gentlemen, I'd planned to speak to you tonight to report on the State of the Union. But the events of earlier today have led me to change those plans. Today is a day for mourning and remembering. Nancy and I are pained to the core by the tragedy of the Shuttle Challenger. We know we share this pain with all of the people of our country. This is truly a national loss. Nineteen years ago, almost to the day, we lost three astronauts in a terrible accident on the ground. But we've never lost an astronaut in flight. We've never had a tragedy like this. And perhaps we've forgotten the courage it took for the crew of the shuttle. But they, the Challenger 7, were aware of the dangers, but overcame them and did their jobs brilliantly. We mourn seven heroes. Michael Smith, Dick Scobie, Judith Resnick, Ronald McNair, Allison Onizuka, Gregory Jarvis, and Krista Nikoloff. We mourn their loss as a nation together. The families of the seven, we cannot bear, as you do, the full impact of this tragedy. But we feel the loss, and we're thinking about you so very much. Your loved ones were daring and brave, and they had that special grace, that special spirit that says, give me a challenge, and I'll meet it with joy. They had a hunger to explore the universe and discover its truths. They wished to serve, and they did. They served all of us. We've grown used to wonders in this century. It's hard to dazzle us. But for 25 years, the United States space program has been doing just that. We've grown used to the idea of space, and perhaps we forget that we've only just begun. We're still pioneers. They, the members of the Challenger crew, were pioneers. And I want to say something to the school children of America who were watching the live coverage of the shuttle's takeoff. I know it's hard to understand, but sometimes painful things like this happen. It's all part of the process of exploration and discovery. It's all part of taking a chance and expanding man's horizons. The future doesn't belong to the faint-hearted. 
It belongs to the brave. The Challenger crew is pulling us into the future, and we'll continue to follow them. I've always had great faith in and respect for our space program, and what happened today does nothing to diminish it. We don't hide our space program. We don't keep secrets and cover things up. We do it all up front and in public. That's the way freedom is, and we wouldn't change it for a minute. We'll continue our quest in space. There will be more shuttle flights and more shuttle crews, and yes, more volunteers, more civilians, more teachers in space. Nothing ends here. Our hopes and our journeys continue. I want to add that I wish I could talk to every man and woman who works for NASA or who worked on this mission and tell them your dedication and professionalism have moved and impressed us for decades, and we know of your anguish. We share it. There's a coincidence today. On this day, 390 years ago, the great explorer Sir Francis Drake died aboard ship off the coast of Panama. In his lifetime, the great frontiers were the oceans, and a historian later said he lived by the sea, died on it, and was buried in it. Well, today, we can say of the Challenger crew, their dedication was, like Drake's, complete. The crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger honored us for the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them, this morning, as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of Earth to touch the face of God. Thank you. A second dam disaster was caused in 1928 at the St. Francis Dam, created by famous Los Angeles engineer William Mulholland, the savior of the city who had brought them water. He created the aqueduct which brings water from 233 miles away to Los Angeles using gravity alone. Without that water, the growth of Los Angeles would have been difficult to contemplate. They were getting their water from various local ditches, not very effective. Mulholland, as you can imagine, was not liked by local farmers, but he was loved by city residents. And he decided to make an enhancement to the aqueduct. He decided to build a reservoir site to store Los Angeles water in case there was a drought. It was constructed in 1926. And from really the moment that it was constructed, they started to notice a few very small cracks. But it was always inspected and didn't seem to be any particular issue. Some amount of contraction is going to be normal with any kind of stone structure. After a year passes of this dam being there, holding back the reservoir, Mulholland personally inspects the dam because there's reports of more of these cracks. No problem. He sees a particular crack. He calls it a vertical contraction crack. It's normal. He has the workers seal it with grout. A few more appear in 1927. Each time, Mulholland, who is a very respected engineer, he has the confidence of Los Angeles for this operation. He's right on it, watching it all. The local residents are not happy. They hated the project anyway. In some cases, residents were sabotaging parts of the aqueduct, bringing Los Angeles water to the local farmers. They start to see water leaks. They start to see a lot of saturation around this area, leaks under the aqueduct, and they, they express alarm. I'm Jane Perlez. 
longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances— I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In March 1928, to relieve some of the pressure, Mulholland orders that a drain pipe be installed. And then he orders that water stop flowing into the reservoir. What's there is going to be fine. March 12, 1928, the dam's almost two years in operation. Mulholland and others are summoned by the dam keeper because he sees a new crack. And this one's going almost all across the dam. Mulholland inspects it, recommends changes that can be done in the future, doesn't have to be done right now, goes home to Los Angeles. Midnight. Though there are no witnesses to it, the dam bursts. We know because hydraulic powerhouses nearby lost voltage. 12.4 billion gallons of water surge into the San Francisco cavern. The dam keeper, his family are killed. A 120-foot flood wave travels at 18 miles per hour, kills powerhouse workmen, their families, flows into the Santa Clara River. It fills it up, overflows its bank washes away the town of Castiotic Junction, floods more power stations, kills another power crew and their families, all of this suddenly with no warning. The towns of Fillmore, Santa Paula, Barsdale are devastated. Houses, people are sent to Ventura, California, into the Pacific Ocean. In five hours, the water went from the dam site to the sea, which was 54 miles away. A terrible wave, over 900 deaths. It turned out that Mulholland wasn't exactly wrong. The dam structure itself was not the problem. The western part of the dam was built on shoddy, reddish conglomerate, not really rock. When it was wet, it ceased to be rock, and it started to lose some of its hold. And that's the reason cracks were appearing in the otherwise safe structure of the dam. Mulholland was devastated by this. And 
later told a jury that the only thing I envy here are the dead. Mulholland was no longer a hero. He was acquitted, but he lived his life in isolation and died nine years after the incident. So I think it's in dams and levees and that sort of thing where negligence or inaction from a government entity can cause the most harm. But I think there's a significant government-run big technology disaster that's more obscure, one that's forgotten but had an emotional impact at least in the nation's capital when it occurred, one that almost killed the President of the United States. February 28, 1844, the USS Princeton is launched and displayed at Alexandria, Virginia. This is a big deal. She's a state-of-the-art ship. She had a sail and steam propulsion as well, with newly invented screw propellers, the first in the U.S. Navy to have it, 42-pound cannons. One of them, named the Peacemaker, was a cannon that weighed 27,000 pounds. It was a sign of American military might. And to celebrate, 400 guests boarded the ship at night to review. They were ferried in from the nation's capital. The guests include the president, John Tyler, former first lady, Dolly Madison, secretary of the Navy, Thomas Gilmer, secretary of state, Abel Upshur, several congressmen and senators, all ferried out to the vessel. Refreshments are served under the deck in the salon, hosted by the captain, Robert Stockton, who, in addition to funds from the U.S. Congress, also partially funded the vessel himself. He serves them roast fowl, champagne, la-di-da, talking, smoozing, all of the guests are having a great time. The band is playing Hail to the Chief. When they pass George Washington's house, Mount Vernon, patriotic celebration begins. They play the Star-Spangled Banner, and they fire one of the cannons. There are toasts in the saloon to Washington. After some of this lollygagging, the captain and the secretary of the Navy urge everyone up on deck to see the firing of this amazing gun, the Peacemaker. And they all rush up. But President John Tyler is grabbed by a dignitary for a drink below. Come, have a drink with me. Okay, we'll toast to Washington. Okay, he obliged. He'll get up there when he can. He's the president after all. His secretary of war, William Wilkin, runs up to the deck with the others. But he jokes, though I'm secretary of war, I do not like firing. I believe I shall move away. The gun is loaded and fired, and it explodes, sending shrapnel into the crowd. The ship trembles. White smoke covers the deck. There's total confusion. In a matter of seconds, Tyler's secretary of state and secretary of the Navy are killed. So are five others. Twenty are wounded, including Captain Stockton. It is absolutely horrific. There are deaf, wounded people, struggling, bleeding, ladies splattered with red blood. Senator Benton of Missouri was blown on his back and unconscious. The captain's hair was singed. He cries, as does President Tyler when he runs up and sees the sight of the bodies. Dolly Madison is okay, far from the accident, and she and the guests are slowly led off the ship. Her niece said that Dolly never spoke about the incident again. Couldn't. Tyler was president just one more year. The incident shook him. He replaced his secretary. 
but the event did have some lasting consequence, perhaps a positive one. During the incident, Tyler had comforted and escorted Julia Gardner, whose father David, a colonel in the New York militia, was killed in the explosion. The president and Gardner were later married. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. If you do like the program, please tell someone about it. It helps for other people to be able to discover the show. Thanks for listening.